Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And the episode that we're doing today kind of brushes up against another one of our episodes, the one that we did on Boudicca a while back. And it involves a Roman legion that's been speculated about for decades. We've gotten a number of requests for this one, but the most recent came from listener Alexandra. And already, if this is one of your pet things, you probably know what it is. Uh, (laughs) There is a lot of modern interest in the Ninth Legion, also known as the Ninth Spanish Legion, or you'll see it written as Legio 9 Hispania. And a lot of that popularity stems from uh, this book that was written in the early 1950s by Rosemary Sutcliffe. And her book, which is called The Eagle of the Ninth, tells the story of a Roman soldier looking for his father's lost legion. And it was wildly popular when it was published, and it's continued in its popularity through the decades. There have been numerous television and film adaptations of it. Uh, I mean, as recently as just a couple of years ago, it's one of those things that's become so ingrained in modern culture that people sometimes just take it for straight history, which is a little bit dangerous because while the book, which, by the way, was aimed at young readers, it was like a uh, kind of the equivalent of a young adult novel. Uh, it was researched historically, but at the end of the day, it is a historical adventure novel. It is not a history book. And in Sutcliffe's book, the Ninth Legion vanished in the mist while battling in Scotland. And in the foreword for the book, she wrote, quote, Sometime about the year A.D. 117, the Ninth Legion, which was stationed at Eburicum, where York now stands, marched north to deal with a rising among the Caledonian tribes and was never heard of again. No one knows what happened to the Ninth Legion after it marched into the northern mists. Uh, first, I will say I'm, our convention is normally to use BCE and CE. I'm using AD there just because it's a direct quote. And also, uh, this is not really accurate. <laughs> uh, there is a gap. There's a, there's missing information about what happened to the ninth, but it's not quite so sensational as this. So there's actually been a great deal of debate about the fate of the ninth among historians and a lot of research, which has turned up evidence of their existence after 117. And while the mystery element of it has grown the speculation of it into this legend that really, I I understand the appeal. It sparks the imaginations of storytellers and history buffs alike. But really, this is one of those cases where it's almost about bookkeeping. And it's, it's really mostly a matter of tracking down timelines and events and the evidence we have to sort of see where the likeliest stories intersect. It's kind of like doing historical Occam's razor. So that is what we are talking about today. Uh, and we'll start with a little bit of background on the ninth. Yeah. So we know, I mean, the ninth legion was a real thing. It did exist. It was raised sometime in the sixties BCE. The legion fought in Gaul under Julius Caesar in 58 BCE and in Hispania in the summer of 49 BCE. There's this long and storied history of all their triumphs and defeats and even some revolts from within. But we're going to pick up in 43, in the year 43, and that's common era, when the legion was uh, instrumental in invading Britain under Claudius. We know that four Roman legions garrisoned in Britain under Claudius and Nero. There was the 14th victorious twin legion, which left Britain in 70 CE. The second Augustan legion, which remained during the Roman occupation of Britain. 
the 20th victorious Valerian Legion, which, like the 2nd Augustan, was in Britain throughout the Roman occupation. And then there's the 9th Legion, which we don't know when the end date was for its garrison. Yeah, and these were, uh, there were certainly other legions that came into Britain, but these are the first four that were sent into Britain by the Romans. And while we have fairly certain knowledge of how those first three on this list and those that came after were either conquered or disbanded or went on to other activities, the Ninth Legion remains a little bit slippery. We do know some things about it for sure, though. We know that the Ninth Legion was involved in the rebellion in Britain that Boudicca led, and that was in 61 CE. After that, they were moved to York, where they built what would become the foundations of the city as it exists today. And the last known mention of the Ninth in actual historical accounts is in 82 CE, and that's by the historian Tacitus. In Agricola, Tacitus writes of the Ninth Legion, quote, it might possibly be broke or incorporated with the Legio Sexta Victrix. And this use of the word broke in, in this translation means demolished or uh, decimated. So Tacitus is saying that the Ninth was either wiped out entirely or it joined up with the Sixth Legion. In 165 CE, a list of the existing Roman legions was compiled, and the Ninth was not on that list. Yes, yeah, so we know that somewhere between, uh, you know, this historical mention by Tacitus and 165, which is a, a, an 80-year period, somewhere in there, they stopped being a thing. But before we get into kind of modern research and, and what we have been able to surmise based on archaeological records and, and research records so far, do you want to uh, take a quick word from a sponsor? Sure. All right. So, uh, going back to kind of the modern research on this topic, uh, Bartolomeo Borghese, who's an Italian count that was doing research in the 1830s while he was tracing the career of a Roman politician named Lucius Barbulius Ligarianus, noticed this gap in the knowledge of the Ninth and what they had been up to. Uh, Ligarianus began his career with the Ninth Hispanian Legion, and that was not unusual. Uh, it was fairly common for politicians on a senatorial track to serve in the military for a brief period, usually for one or two years before they reached the age of 24, because at 24 they would become eligible to enter the Senate as, you know, low-ranking officials. Ligarianus became a consul in 135 CE, and he would have been at least 32 at this point. That was the youngest age that he could have been considered for the position, although it's pretty much believed he was closer to 40. This means that he would have been serving in the Ninth Legion around 115 CE. So that's well after the last historical mention in the year 82. And then in 1854, an inscribed slab was unearthed in York by construction workers while they were working on digging out a drain. And this slab appeared to be the middle section of a larger piece. It's about one meter square. And on it is is inscribed... The Emperor Caesar Nerva Trajan Augustus, son of the deified Nerva, conqueror of Germany, conqueror of Dacia, chief priest in his 12th year of Tribunician power, A.D. 108, acclaimed Imperator six times through the agency of the Ninth Hispanian Legion. And this piece uh, is important because of that date. This piece was found near one of the gates of the fortress Eberacum, and it may have been a dedication inscription that it was uh, celebrating the completion of the gate. And that date, as I said, 
is incredibly important because this is suddenly the next record that we have. It's not in the written history, but it is an artifact that clearly links the Ninth Hispanian Legion to the year 108 because that means they were in York at that point. So now we have moved forward the la- at the last historically known point of their existence. Writing in 1885, German historian Theodore Mommsen suggested that maybe the Ninth had indeed fallen in a rebellion at some point and had then had been replaced by the Sixth Legion. His theory, which was based on historical study, was that an allied group, which was likely the Celtic tribe, the Brigands, had revolted and then overtaken the Ninth. And for evidence, Momsen points to the troubles mentioned by Hadrian's biographer related to the situation that Hadrian found when he became the Roman emperor as as one of these uh, evidence pieces that this is how the Ninth ended. So many of the people that were conquered by Hadrian's predecessor Trajan were at this point rebelling and rising up in military actions against the Roman Empire, and that included the peoples of Britain. Momsen's second piece of supporting evidence is a letter written by Marcus Cornelius Fronto to Marcus Aurelius, and he references Hadrian's loss of men at the hands of the Jews, which is Hadrian's Jewish war and very well documented, and at the hands of the Britons in the same sentence. Though a British war is not clearly part of the timeline, there's some circumstantial evidence of it. There are coins that were minted under Hadrian that feature Britannia, and some scholars have interpreted as marking a significant military action in Britain. While Momsen's original position was that this war which destroyed the Ninth was around 108 CE, these coins are often believed to mark the British war as having fallen somewhere between 117 and 119. But this isn't universally accepted, and Momsen kind of uh, adjusted his timeline a couple times based on, you know, these findings and others. Uh, coin experts have dated some of these coins as falling actually much earlier in Hadrian's rule. And other theories include the idea that the coins were actually minted in 122, which is when Hadrian traveled to Britain himself. So debate about the coinage as evidence of the timeline kind of continues. One of the problems of figuring out the fate of the Ninth Legion is that clearly, even when you look at existing evidence, it's still open to interpretation. And one of the examples of this has to do with the Sixth Legion. So while it is documented that the Sixth Legion entered Britain, there was a little bit of a logic leap made to assume that they were actually there to replace the Ninth. And this assumption is usually credited back to Bartolomeo Borghese and the work he was doing in the 1830s. And it does appear that Momsen was using Borghese as a source and seemed to think that the assumption was pretty sound based on the timing and logic of the situation. But the sixth as a replacement legion is not actually substantiated. It's kind of just a case of the ninth going missing from the historical record around the same time that the sixth showed up in Britain. Hadrian was also moving other troops into Britain in 119, possibly as a lead-up to the start of the construction on Hadrian's Wall, which was in 122. So to single out the 6th as a replacement for the ninth doesn't quite hold up. And now we're about to get to some interesting modern evidence. So before we do that, uh, do you want to do another quick word from a sponsor? Sure. Okay, so getting back to some interesting modern archaeological finds... Uh, In 1959, a roofing tile with the stamp of the Ninth Legion was found in the Netherlands in a legionary fortress at Nijmegen called Hunerberg. Uh, 
It was not the only artifact bearing the Knight's mark to be found at that site. And these discoveries were a bit of a revelation, because prior to this 1959 find, almost all of the artifacts found at Nijmegen Fortress were marked with the stamp of the 10th Gemina, or 10th Twin Legion. The 10th Twin Legion are documented as having been in the fortress near the end of the 1st century, but the Dacian Wars under Trajan in the early years of the 2nd century required them to leave. There are also some tiles at the Hunerberg Fortress that are marked Vex Brit, and that indicates that they were associated with a detachment from Britain. Archaeologist Jules Bogaerts believes that these actually have been associated with mixed troops rather than men from just one legion. This really leaves the question of the pieces that are marked with the seal of the Ninth Legion. So while the artifacts bearing the Ninth Legion seal haven't been precisely dated, they're really believed to be early second century pieces. And one of the most interesting aspects of these artifacts is that they bear the stamp as L-E-G-V-I-I-I-I. H-I-S-P, so Legion 9 Hispania, and in this instance, there's a V and four I's as the Roman numerals for nine rather than what we've come to know in the modern sense of I-X. So Ninth Legion stamps from York, however, do have the Roman numeral as I-X for nine. And for the most part, items found in Britain retain the I-X version of the numeration, whereas those found on the European continent use the V and four I's version. This is somewhat significant because near a villa about 10 kilometers away from the fortress, a horse harness pendant was found and it uses the IX convention to indicate nine, suggesting that some members of the Legion who had been garrisoned in York eventually made their way toward Germany. Yeah. So that becomes significant uh, that they, they suddenly found this one variation that is known to be from York in Nijmegen. Uh, and then there is this additional body of evidence about sort of what happened to the Ninth, and that has to do with former Ninth Legion members who then rose to offices in the Senate. Lucius Ananius Sextius Florentius moved from his service in the Legion to a proconsul position and then a governorship, and that's an office he was appointed to around 127. Because of the time frame between his military service and his governorship, really no more than five years could have elapsed. That means he was serving with the Ninth as late as 122, well after they're characterized as having been vanquished. Similarly, Quintus Numicius Unor, another member of the Ninth, is on record as a consul in 161 CE. And as this is normally a post that a man would have achieved in his mid-30s to early 40s, that would have put his fighting around the age of 20, around the year 140. So that then puts it much later than many historians have credited the Ninth with still being around. Now, it's possible that he could be some sort of outlier to the normal career system and that he didn't achieve the same office milestones and the same age time frames as colleagues. But even so, that would only scoot the numbers around a little bit. Like we're talking about a, it would be like a 20 year difference because if he was, the idea of him making this console position in his 60s would really be super duper strange. So we have some popular possibilities to explain what happened to the Ninth Legion. Uh, one is that they were vanquished in a skirmish in the mists of Scotland around 82 CE. That one's not really super held up since we have definite evidence beyond that. 
Another is that the Ninth were trapped in an uprising against the Roman occupation of Britain sometime around 117 or 119. And then we get to my favorite one. (laughs) That's that they just vanished into thin air during one of the above. They were just taken by some mystical force. Yeah. (laughs) And the, the fourth one is maybe the least exciting, but to me it seems like the most logical. Yeah, that's that they were reassigned, maybe sent toward Germany, and eventually they were either dispersed or absorbed either in whole or in part into other legions. I have to confess that I I kind of like the Brigadoon explanation. <laughs> they just vanished. They just went. So there is enough evidence of post-Britain Ninth Legion presence, uh, or at least members of it, that the idea that they just vanished in the 80s or in uh, the one-teens is pretty thin. And we do know that, you know, later after the 80s, Roman soldiers fell in large numbers to the Britain under Hadrian. So it is certainly within the realm of possibility that enough of the Ninth fell that their significance as a legion was pretty significantly diminished. And it's not outside the realm of possibility that the remaining soldiers went on to other legions. Uh, while a lot of the really more sensational versions of the story of the Ninth uh, saying that they vanished fail to take into account is that if an entire legion of accomplished soldiers really had just vanished into thin air, then we'd probably have a lot of accounts of it. Instead, we just have a lack of accounts of what happens. So it's not really the legion that vanished. It's just sort of the legion that faded away. And it's the historical record that's really gone missing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think to me what makes the most sense, and again, you know, this is my speculation on it, is is just that, you know, it slowly sort of started to fall apart and they may have lost a lot of men. And some of those men went on to other things, but like, they they just stopped being noteworthy enough to be included in the record until the point where they, it kind of had petered out. It's it wasn't an, so much that there was a, a hard end stop to it. Yeah, kind of an Occam's razor kind of thing. That's definitely... The simplest and most logical explanation. Yeah. And I, I feel bad. I feel almost like um, mean because I know there are people that love to speculate on what happened to the Ninth Legion. And I get it. But I just, for my thinking, you're certainly welcome to continue to speculate along those lines. But for my thinking, it just makes more sense that, like we said, they just kind of stopped being significant. Yeah. Well, when it comes to our history mystery kind of episodes... I I feel like the response we get is kind of divided between the people who love the mysteries and the fact that we ultimately get to the end of the episode and like, we don't know, uh, it's fine. And then we have other folks that are like, we got to the end of the episode and we still don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of the... The stuff that I came across even while researching this, you know, as I said, there have been a lot of film and television adaptations. And anytime one of them, you know, sort of is in the midst of its pre-release promotional push, like there will suddenly crop up a lot of articles around that time talking about it. And those are the ones that are usually like, and there's no clear evidence as to what happened. But then if you read a lot of people that are sort of more in-depth, ongoing historians about it, they're like, well... It's more just like, it's not a mystery. It's just kind of like a shrugger. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, it seems like it just kind of, you know, fell apart and tendrilled out and then it, it just wasn't there anymore. It's not so much a mystery as like a, a, a non-noteworthy end. Do you have some mysterious listener mail? It's not so mysterious, but it is cool. It is from our listener, Alicia, and it is about, uh, it's referring back to an older podcast uh, on the Kanto Earthquake. 
And she says, hi, ladies, I've just been steadily catching up on years of stuff you missed in history class, and I finally reached an episode that I know something about. I just listened to the Great Kanto Earthquake of 1923 episode and really enjoyed hearing about the more societal and historical aspects of the disaster. In your podcast, you make reference to the photographs of the disaster, which made me think about an exhibition that I helped curate through a museum studies course at Mills College. The exhibition featured woodblock prints that were commissioned to document the disaster and in turn also influenced artistic styles. The prints were very interesting to work with and absolutely beautiful, albeit horrifying because many depict the firestorms and their aftermath in vivid detail, records of which are not available via photograph. The show, titled Reverberations, Japanese Prints of the 1923 Kanto Earthquake, included about 20 woodblock prints from the Mills College collection, many dozens of old postcards, and a video. We also hosted a printmaking workshop and an online exhibition catalog with essays examining various aspects of the artworks and their intersections with society. Unfortunately, the catalog has disappeared, but I did save some images of the prints and the essays that I helped write. By this point, I'm sure you're wondering, but what does any of this have to do with catfish, which was in the subject line of her email? Well, there is a Japanese myth that a giant wiggly catfish lives under Japan and is pinned down by a gatekeeper. Earthquakes are caused when this catfish breaks free. There are a bunch of societal, spiritual, and sociopolitical aspects of this belief, and our essay explores how woodblock prints communicated these beliefs and their impact on post-earthquake Japanese society during the Tokugawa, Meiji, and Taisho eras. I thought you might find this aspect of the topic interesting, so I uploaded some images, the essay, and other goodies so you could check them out for yourself. Uh, I'm pulling together my thoughts for this email. I also found this blog post. She links to a blog post in the slideshow with more examples of woodblock prints that uh, similarly capture what's going on here. This is very fascinating. I did not realize that there were, this is stupid on my part, uh, or just ignorant, kind of blind spot historically, woodblock prints of historical events. Oh, yeah. Like, kind of as news. Yeah. the uh, Pretty yeah, cool. I've, I've missed this completely, so now I'm excited because it's another sort of, I fear it will be a rabbit hole situation. <laughs> I may lose time that I probably should be spending doing some other work, but I cannot resist. I want to look at everything now. Because it's cool, and I didn't, it never occurred to me. They're really beautiful. Like we I were... said, I, I feel ignorant to have that blind spot, but <laughs> no we longer, thanks to Alicia. Uh, one time I was there, and... The, somebody was doing a demonstration of how they carve them. It was really cool. That's super cool. I'm like blown away by the whole concept. Art and history together in new ways for me anyway. Uh, so if you know of cool things like that, or if you just want to share your thoughts on an episode or tell us about your link to something historical, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at History at facebook.com slash History at mistinhistory.tumblr.com and at pinterest.com slash mistinhistory. If you would like to purchase some Mist in History goodies, you can do that at our Spreadshirt store, which is mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com. If you would like to research a little bit of something that we talked about today, or link to it anyway, you can go to our parent site, House of Works, type in the words Roman Empire in the search bar, and one of the articles that comes up is 10 Most Long-Lived Empires in History, which is a pretty good read. Uh, you can also visit us at our history site, mistinhistory.com for all of the episodes, show notes, uh, blog posts, all kinds of historical goodies. Uh, and we encourage you to visit us there and at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 